You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Nigel Bigger. Nigel Bigger is Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology and Director of the McDonald Centre for Theology, Ethics and Public Life at the University of Oxford. And this comes to you from Christchurch, a very famous college, of course, in this very famous city and university. Uh, He runs the Ethics and Empire Project, uh, and that's a big part of what we'll be talking about today. It's of particular interest to me as an Australian. In 2020, he published What's Wrong with Rights, a book we'll talk about as well. More recently, his Oxford Ethics and Empire Project has drawn no little attention in the media. Uh, Probably uncomfortable at times, but I think actually very valuable because there's nothing like some publicity generated on an important topic to get people thinking. His latest book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, will be published by HarperCollins in uh, early next year, I think, or thereabouts. Uh, So his expertise ranges over a very wide area. Nigel, thank you very much for taking this time and for hosting us uh, in your place. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, let's kick off. Um, To begin with, you are, in fact, one of the world's most prominent just war theorists. And here we go. We find ourselves with a truly worrying global situation arising out of Russian aggression in the Ukraine and in our part of the world, deep uncertainty about China's real objectives, which we don't think line up based on what they're doing with what they say they're doing. Uh, But I was hoping you might share some reflections on what's happening in the Ukraine. Is that war, in your your view, um, a simple case of an aggressor unjustly invading another nation and thus justifying the West and the Ukrainian itself uh, current military responses? Or are there other, perhaps more complex, more easily missed uh, issues here that are, that are not being widely discussed? So, so the basic condition of of um, of any justified war, according to the tradition of just war thinking, John, is that there needs to be a grave injustice that needs rectifying. So that that's the basic condition of any just war. If there's no grave injustice, then then war is not the way to to address whatever the problem is. So if you believe Vladimir Putin, then then Ukraine was subject to a Nazi regime, and Russian speakers in Ukraine were being persecuted, and that's part of his justification for invading. Um, were that true, uh, Vladimir Putin might have just cause. Um, now, I only know what I, I learned from the Western media. In the West, we do have a free media, and I'm more inclined to believe what, what I, I read in the Western media than what I hear from uh, state-run uh, media in Russia. And as far as I can tell, um, Ukraine's government is, government is not Nazi. And um, far from Russian speakers being persecuted, uh, my perception, partly from reading and partly from personal contacts, is that uh, Russian speakers who used to be pro-Moscow until, until the invasion of, of Crimea in 2014, and especially now, many Russian-speaking Ukrainians have a much stronger sense of Ukrainian identity than they ever had before Putin began to interfere in Ukraine. So um, my view is... Uh, um, Yes, the, 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 the answer is, is simple. Uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is completely morally unjustified. Now, the moral complications come 
perhaps over the issue of the way in which the war is being waged. So uh, just war thinking says that um, in waging a war, you must never intend to kill civilians. Doesn't mean you can't kill them, but you, sh you should never intend to kill them. And you must take care as far as is reasonably possible not to kill them. And the evidence is uh, that uh, Russian uh, troops are sometimes deliberately killing civilians and, and often taking uh, no reasonable measures to avoid killing them. So the way in which Russia is waging the war is also immoral. Um, because the third moral quandary, and this is one that faces us in the West particularly, is um, it would be disproportionate, and that's another criterion for just war, it would be disproportionate, arguably, to, to risk nuclear war with Russia in order to save Ukraine, because nuclear war, war with Russia would obliterate much of Europe, possibly even Ukraine, and you can't save Ukraine by obliterating it. So we want to avoid doing anything to provoke nuclear war with Russia. Um, and so that's why NATO hasn't intervened directly. But then it's a question of how much risk do you take that, um, um, that, that Putin might be provoked by what you do? And that, that's, there's no easy answer to that. Do you feel as a historian there are any um, anything that can be drawn from looking back over the centuries in terms of it obviously hasn't gone as well for Putin as he would have liked. He must be under immense pressure. He appears to be isolated in the sense that people don't want to tell him what he wants to what he needs to know. They tell him what he wants to know. That he may in fact, in the face of it all having gone pear shaped be tempted to escalate the war and to use one of those limited theater nuclear uh, weapons that we hear about? Do you see a real danger of that? Well, I, th I think what Putin has, you know, Putin has been reckless in ways we hoped he would never be reckless. And invading Ukraine is the latest piece of recklessness. And uh, he's certainly shown himself to be ruthless. Uh, and yes, I think the, the danger with, with any kind of autocrat is that he surrounds himself by with, with yes men and doesn't have, um, uh, is not really plugged in, into reality. And the danger is he makes an even more reckless decision. Um, so I think there is a danger of that. Quite how the West would respond to it, um, I don't know. Um, uh, but I think we have to, I'm, I'm, not inclined, I'm not inclined to think we should um, withhold ourselves from any risks lest he do that because that's exactly what he wants. Uh, so we have to take some risks here. Um, so avoiding any direct confrontation is good, but we can't control what he decides. It does seem to me that if you, if, if, since we're talking about, if you like, morality and then moving on to rights, that most of us are horrified by what he's done and we're quite black and white about it. We've lived through an age of you know, moral relativism, this postmodern world that we live in, uh, and we've been told for years that morals are just preferences or, or social constructs. I'd be interested in your views on this because it seems that over recent years we've heard almost absolutist language around things like racial justice, climate action, COVID, LGBT uh, issues. Uh, there's an emergence of dogmatism. Just wondering uh, how you feel whether moral relativism's ever been real and if, it's, yes. if it has, whether its day is over yes. as we confront a very different world. So, so we're roughly of the same age. So we, we came to consciousness in the 
in the late 60s, 70s, and uh, um, for some decades before that, um, in moral philosophy, yes, I mean, logical positivism, and th there was, a, there was a, a theory called emotivism, whereby basically uh, moral expressions are merely expressions of, of what you feel, they're entirely subjective. Uh, and that reigned in philosophy for 20 or 30 years, and then it, it, got, it got, as it were, allied to the spirit of the 60s, the overthrow of traditional, particularly sexual mores, um, and to some extent, looking back, I think moral relativism was a kind of cover for um, the relaxation of, of, um, of sexual morality. Um, but here we are now, what, uh, 50 years later, and to some extent we have seen the effects of that relaxation. We've seen uh, cases of egregious sexual abuse, that sexual liberation led to sexual license, and vulnerable people were abused. And I think we're now going through a period of, of severe, I think too severe, um, moralistic reaction. Um, um, so we, we swung from, from, from license to um, an excessively Puritan uh, moralism, whether it's to do with sexual abuse or to do with race or uh, transgender stuff. Um, um, I'm all for morality. I'm an ethicist. I'm a Christian. I, I do believe that there are moral principles that are universal. Um, um, but I recognize that there is reasonable disagreement between people. And we need to find a way of having a rational, responsible, respectful discussion about some of these very difficult moral matters, um, acknowledging that there are indeed universal principles. But um, um, what general principles mean in terms of particular cases, we can all argue about. Hmm. Well, you've obviously thought about this a great deal and written on it a lot. And coming to your book, What's Wrong With Rights, we do seem to be living in an age where the talk of rights is endless, even to the point where you almost get a hint that some people think they have a right to be happy. It goes beyond the right to pursue happiness. It's a right to happiness. And then there seems to be an expectation that somehow government has a responsibility to make that right happen. Um, now, you've critiqued uh, the idea of abstract and absolute um, rights, which you argue can in fact be quite negative, socially destabilizing, even um, anti-freedom in their effects. So can you work us through your argument there? What's wrong with rights? Uh, so so uh, just with regard to your point about having a right to happiness, there was in fact um, an early version of a Bill of Rights in one of the American states in the 1830s that did actually assert that people had a right, right to happiness. Um, um, most bills of rights say that you, you, you have the right to pursue happiness rather than actually having it. Um, um, so first, first of all, let's, let's, let's say what's good about rights, just before people, if, unless people, less people mis misunderstand that I'm all against rights, I'm not. So rights are really important social institutions for um, um, guaranteeing or protecting our access to certain freedoms and benefits. Uh, so um, uh, if you have a right to, to free speech, John, um, and if I, if I try and um, uh, infringe your right to free speech, you can appeal to the police and the courts and the law for your claim against me to be, um, uh, to be upheld. The point is this, rights are legal institutions and they depend on a set of um, uh, legal institutions and police and courts to to, to make them effective. In the absence of, of social institutions, uh, you may have a moral claim against me, but, but you have no right, because uh, 
if I just, if I ignore your moral claim, um, then you have nothing to appeal to. Um, so, um, but the first thing to say is, as legal um, as legal entities, rights are really important in securing uh, freedoms and and benefits for us. Now, there are a number of problems I, I see with with the way in which we talk about rights sometimes, and one of them has to do with the way in which rights talk. Um, often completely pushes all other moral talk off the table. So, um, here's an example. Uh, seven years ago, you may remember, um, uh, a couple of, of militant Islamists broke into the offices of the um, satirical magazine in Paris, uh, Charlie Hebdo, and shot dead 10 of the um, members, uh, 10 of the um, um, editors and colleagues of, of this magazine. Why? Because um, Charlie Hebdo had published um, uh, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that they regarded as insulting. After the, the murders, um, understandably, thousands and tens of thousands of people got on the streets in London and Europe and no doubt in Australia too, to um, um, protest against these killings and to affirm our right to free speech. And I, I, I entirely agree with that. Uh, the murders had no justification at all, and our right to free speech, even to uh, uh, um, publish what other people find offensive, is, is really important in a liberal society. But here's my point. Um, I think that, that Charlie Hebdo had the legal right to publish insulting cartoons of the Muhammad Prophet, of the Prophet Muhammad, um, but I'm not persuaded that they should have done it because, um, um, morally speaking, um, we should, say th we, we should, we should um, speak truths that other people might happen to find offensive, but we speak truths because they're important, not in order to offend other people. And it's not clear to me, in, in publishing these uh, uh, satirical cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, um, what good the editors sought to, to achieve. So um, readers of Charlie Hebdo are typically um, uh, militantly secularist uh, folk who would find it amusing to have the Prophet Muhammad mocked. Um, but the more important business of, of trying to build relations with French Muslims was not, was not advanced by that. It, uh, this wasn't an, an invitation to any kind of respectful conversation. It was a provocation, irritation. So this is the general point that Charlie Hebdo did have the legal right to do what they did, but in my view, they had a moral duty to restrain themselves. Uh, and the point is this, that uh, in addition to rights talk, we also need duty talk, and we also need virtue talk, because what they were lacking was the virtue of self-restraint and the virtue of charity, which says that speak truths, yes, but don't deliberately provoke or needle or mock or insult other people. Uh, so. Rights are important, but they ain't enough. We also need uh, a wider range of, of um, uh, moral talk. I worry in my own country that rather than talking of cooperation and getting on with your neighbour even when you disagree, what we've done is set up incredibly complex systems and architecture around people's rights um, and obligations. Uh, started with the Sex Discrimination Act, the objectives were laudable. I don't criticise them. But what we've ended up with is a system where we compete with our fellow Australians mm. for our rights. And 
It says it all. You compete for your rights, which means that a lot of people are going to have to lose. And no one talks anymore of the nuancing of give and take and understanding and cooperation. No, I, I, I agree with that. And the, 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 the dominance of rights talk and the way in which it pushes other considerations like common good or um, uh, obligations to, to, to our neighbours off, off, the, off the table in the end doesn't serve the cause of rights because if you have a, a legal right, John, uh, if that's going to be effective uh, in the first instance, then you need people around you who, who are capable of self-restraint, mm. who are capable of respecting your right. Uh, and that means they need to have the virtue of self-restraint and the virtue of charity. So uh, if you're going to have uh, your right secure, um, then, then you also need to have a, a society around you that has been trained and educated in a set of virtues or, what should we say, um, positive uh, characteristics, um, whereby they have the personal wherewithal uh, to respect your right. Um, so it's, it's clear to me that we, we, we do need to, to um, recover our, our ability to talk about uh, not just rights, but duties and virtues. And the truth is, I think, that, that anyone knows that we, we need such things as, as, as virtues. Um, we may not call them that we, because, we're, we're, we're all sh because we're still in the shadow of moral, moral relativism. We think that we don't have anything morally in common, so we don't call them virtues. We call them skills, perhaps, or character traits. But um, no society, no institution, no business, no university can survive without their members um, exercising things like patience, tolerance, self-respect, um, and, and these things need to be cultivated. But we, we're so, as it were, shy of acknowledging that um, uh, these, things need, these moral things need to be cultivated uh, in public institutions. We don't talk about them. So we need to recover our capacity to, to acknowledge them and, and deliberately promote them. To use some of your own words, just to tease us out for a moment, uh, you, you wrote in What's Wrong With Rights that a sustainable liberal society needs citizens who have been so formed in the, this is a bit I'm interested in, the virtues of humility, forbearance, forgiveness, justice and charity, so as to withhold themselves from provoking others and to tolerate their exercise of legal freedom in uncongenial ways, which is what you've just said. But I thought we might dwell on this idea of virtue for a moment, because yeah. I've often quipped that we seem to have detached it from individuals. Once I would have said you were virtuous by, whatever, by virtue of whatever yes. characteristics I saw were in you, yes. of quality, we now attach it to causes and yes. to people. So if you dare to disagree with me, you're no longer virtuous, even though you might have the classic virtues about you. Yes. What do you, I'd love you to elaborate just a little on what you think are the virtues that are really, that if you like, need reinvigorating. Yes. Well, first of all, it is, it is um, significant, isn't it? And I hadn't thought about this until you actually said it. The phrase virtue signaling is extremely common now. Now, it's often used in a pejorative sense. Virtue signaling is, is, is um, something that those of us who were sceptical about it often talk about, but the word virtue has come back onto the table again. And I think that's, that in itself is a good thing. What, what seems to be lacking in the, in the current cultural climate um, are the virtues of self-criticism, uh, because, for example, 
uh, it's quite common for uh, social justice warriors to um, be quite clear that um, those who disagree with them are evil and wicked and, and racist and white supremacist and whatever. Um, sin lies over there, wrongdoing lies over there, uh, but not in here. And that, that leads to a very um, unforgiving uh, political climate because um, we're very harsh toward each other because we don't seem to recognize the extent to which we ourselves are morally compromised and we, we share with people we disagree with uh, moral flaws. Uh, and I think we, in order to recover a properly liberal society, it's not enough to uh, uh, keep alive the traditional liberal virtues of respect and tolerance. We need something deeper. Um, I speak as a Christian here, and, and certainly in Christian tradition, and there may be other traditions too, where the virtues of humility uh, um, and self-criticism and, and uh, forgiveness are prominent. And I think we need those two to sustain and generate a properly liberal society again, because uh, at the moment the temper is quite illiberal. Um, if we could, though, if we could come to uh, the issue that um, uh, has been very interesting for you, and I think it's very important uh, to be explored a bit, empires, colonialism, uh, if you like, the guilt and getting people to genuinely understand what's happened. You, you've got this uh, new book coming out, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Yep. What are you driving at with the book? What's its purpose? Uh, can you give us a taste? Yeah, the, the reason I, I, I wrote it was, was uh, I mean, partly as, as a Briton, uh, to be told as I am being told uh, that the last 300 years of, of my history, certainly abroad, was, was a litany of, of atrocity and, and racism and economic exploitation is, is, is a difficult thing to hear. Um, if it were true, then I just need to swallow it. But I've been reading about imperial history for about 30 years now, and I know it, <laughs> it just wasn't that simple, and a lot of, it, a lot of what had been said is simply not true. So part of what I want to do in the book is, is, is to correct um, the distorted historical narrative that is being put about. But more than that, the, the history of, of British colonialism or the British Empire, the significance of it isn't simply limited to Britain because uh, British colonialism is a proxy for the, for the history of the West because um, Britain was, from the early 19th century until about the 1930s, uh, the leading Western power. Now it's the US. And so the, the record of the British Empire is a record of a large part of the West. And um, it's really important, particularly now, and we, we see it especially because of uh, Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine, but also because of the, the rise of uh, an autocratic China. Uh, the question of whether, whether we, should, we should keep faith with the West is a really important one. And, and if, if the history of the West is, as the anti-colonialist uh, critics say, a, a litany of, of oppression, then one might have good reason to abandon faith in the West. Um, but my knowledge of, of, of colonial history tells me that isn't so, and that um, Western colonialism, not least British, was in, in many respects humanitarian and, and liberal, um, and um, uh, the West needs to have faith in itself, and um, it can find reasons for pride as well as shame in, in the last 300 years of, of Western and especially British colonial history. So the reason I wrote the book is not 
just to clear up the, the truth about the past, though that's part of the, the reason, the main reason um, is to recover the reputation of the West in order to maintain faith in its future at a time when uh, the things we in the West take for granted, our freedoms, um, it, um, are under serious threat from, from not mainly Russia, but mainly China. Uh, Nigel, you've had this uh, major project, very interesting, Ethics and Empire ongoing. I'd love you to tell us a bit about it, and why it ended up controversial, and, and why, I think, to your enormous credit, you've resolved to harden down and mount the arguments. <laughs> so, yes, the, the, the Ethics and Empire project was launched uh, in July 2000, 2017, um, and it's designed to look at empire from ancient China to the modern period, and to ask, how did contemporaries view these empires? Um, um, how did they view them morally? Um, uh, so so the, the project does not assume, as many people would like us to assume, that empire always and everywhere is, is immoral and wicked and oppressive and undemocratic. Um, it doesn't assume that. It assumes that sometimes uh, empire can be legitimate. And um, one of the things we discovered early on um, was that um, when trying to find uh, examples of ancient Chinese critiques of empire or medieval Islamic critiques of empire, they don't exist. Uh, because um, ancient Chinese folk and medieval uh, Muslims regarded em empire as normal or which you will find are, are treatises that are concerned to um, uh, describe the, what a virtuous emperor should look like, in other words, what, what good government looks like. And you'll find by implication criticisms of bad government and bad imperial government. So the concern was with the quality of government, uh, not with the imperial form of it. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, empire has been around since, since the dawn of history. Uh, the Assyrians did it, the Babylonians did it, we know the Greeks and the Romans did it, the Carthaginians did it, the Aztecs and the Incas did it in Latin America, the Comanche did it in early 18th century southwest, um, what's now the United States. Uh, the Chinese did it, arguably the Chinese are still doing it in Tibet. And in Africa, uh, the Zulu um, uh, nation expanded in the 1820s, were involved in at least one exterminationist war against fellow Africans. And in West Africa, the Ashanti were doing it. So uh, empire is, is, is not a peculiarly modern thing. It's certainly not a peculiarly European or British thing. Um, all peoples have been, been, been doing empire. And, and what's odd about the, the, the current uh, interest in colonialism is it's only in European colonialism, and especially British. Um, and that's, that's odd because it, it obscures the fact that empire has been universal, and peoples of all skin colors have, have done it, and even odder when uh, arguably uh, China is still doing it, and there seems to be no interest in that. So I think that's an important thing to establish. I mean, many empires have been the norm, not the unusual thing. Some must have been particularly nasty, some must have been less nasty, some may have even done good things in terms of outcomes for the people who lived in that empire. They can't all be the same. And yet, as you say, we only ever hear about one. Oh. 
The other thing to... And it's assumed that it was very bad. Yeah. The other thing to, put, to point out is that some of the most massive atrocities committed in the 20th century were committed by nation states. Germany was, was a nation state. It was expanding, um, but the, 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 the program for, for annihilating the Jews and Slavs and others came from Berlin. Um, and then, then the, the, ten, the, the, the millions of people who died in Russia through uh, Stalin's policies in the 1930s uh, and, and in China. Um, so, so mass atrocity is not, is not by any means the monopoly of empires. Uh, plenty of nation states can do it. To take the Japanese empire uh, that uh, arose before the Second World War and was being uh, promoted during the Second World War, Lots of Indians, most Indians, uh, fought for the British Empire against the Japanese, not necessarily because they wanted the British to rule, to rule them forever, um, but they did recognize that the record of the Japanese Empire, particularly the uh, so-called Rape of Nanjing in the late 1930s, was atrocious. And so they, they would rather fight for the British than, 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 than let the Japanese uh, take over. So even Indian subjects of the Raj recognized um, a moral difference between the British and the Japanese empires. But before you were able to get those arguments up there, um, you were effectively subject to an attempt to cancel you. Yes, yes. And <laughs> what does that say about scholarship? What's it, what was it like to go through? Yeah. You decided not to give way. Yeah. And presumably that's partly because you think it says things about scholarship that and academia today that, that have to be resisted. Yes. Um, so I, 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 I wandered into the culture war in, in 2017 completely. It's pretty easy to do. It's a yeah, minefield. Well, <laughs> you, can, you can triple wire that you don't see. Yeah, well, I didn't. Um, so you know, all I did was I, 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 I told you that the Ethics and Empire Project began in July 17. In November, I published an article in the London Times making what I thought was the completely unobjectionable point that we British have uh, confined cause for pride as well as shame, as well as shame, in the history of the British Empire. I published that in late November, and in the first week of December, I finally got round to, pub to, to putting online a description of the Ethics and Empire project. And in the second week of December, um, um, to cut a long story short, um, three online denunciations of my project were published, um, the second by 58 Oxford colleagues, and the third by about two to 300 um, academics worldwide. And um, within two days, of uh, three days of the first uh, denunciation, which was by a group of students, uh, my main collaborator uh, um, um, resigned from the project. And so this was really quite Shaking, I, 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 I had no idea quite what to make of it. What I discovered was that, uh, I mean, they, 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 they criticized the project for um, trying to create some kind of balance of goods and evils between, uh, with regard to the British Empire, which is not actually what it was about at all. And they clearly didn't like the idea that I, I did not assume that, that empire is always and everywhere, uh, in the end, um, wicked and evil and to be repudiated. Um, but one thing I, I learnt was that, and I, I learnt this partly through letters to the newspapers, partly through emails that came to me, uh, was that lots of people with non-white skins out there agree with me. Uh, so for example, 
uh, there is a um, consultant uh, palliative care physician whom I'd met 15 years before, I hadn't seen again, who was of Indian extraction. And he wrote to me to say, uh, Nigel, I don't know if you know this, but uh, my grandfather was in the Jallianwalabagh in Amritsar when General Dyer opened fire on the crowd in 1919, which is one of the great uh, um, and, and much to be lamented imperial massacres. So my grandfather was there. He was in the crowd, he said. But he said, I agree with you. The British Empire contained good as well as evil. As I might add, does any nation state with a long history. Um, so that's one thing I learned that was valuable. And then over the years, um, well, I finally regained my nerve. And um, in preparation, particularly for writing my book on colonialism, I read a number of, of books written by the people or the kind of people who were um, wanting my, my project to be shut down. And that, that's clearly what they wanted. This was a repressive move. Uh, I've read them, and every time I read them, I come out feeling stronger because their arguments just don't stack up. Um, and um, there are passages in my book on colonialism where I, I take a particular book or report and I just, I just lay out uh, the ways in which this is not reliable history. Uh, because I think it's important to see that in some parts of, of contemporary academic scholarship, uh, there, there is dishonesty, uh, um, almost fraud. Um, so you, it's, it's, it, on, on colonial matters, it's not enough to read one book. You need, you need to know who you're reading, you need to you know where they're coming from, and you need to balance it with, with, with uh, reading other narratives, because you can't be sure this is fair and reliable history. Well, uh, let me ask you a question uh, that's see if we can't get some further along the road of um, empires being mixed blessings. Have there been any empires that have not at some stage um, had slavery that you can think of? Um, or have they all had slaves? No, I mean, I mean slavery was, was as universal an institution as, as empires. Um, and the Ottoman Empire continued a form of slavery until the 1920s. And uh, yes, I mean, I mean, slavery, which seems to us to be um, an undiluted evil, and it wasn't pretty, but, but one needs to recognize that life in the past was often not pretty. Uh, it wasn't pretty for free people too. Uh, life was brutal. The reason I raise yeah, it yeah. is that, of course, that's where the debate about, you know, it almost always seems to go in relation to the British Empire at yes, the moment. Okay. It's de yes. It's, yes. Um, it's It's Livingston, you know, uh, in, in yes. Edinburgh, uh, apparently worked in a cotton mill when he was 10 years old, and that might have used cotton that was produced by slave labour. Yes. Well, if he was working at the age of 10, yes. he wasn't exactly enjoying a good life himself, but he went on later to become a major figure in the abolitionist movement. Of course. So my point is... Uh, that um, uh, that's where everyone goes when they want to uh, paint the British Empire as having been yep. terrible. It kept slaves. It did for a couple of hundred years, and it was hideous and terrible. But every other regime, and I would argue, even today, we forget this, there are more slaves now than ever in the world, still. Yep. And they don't seem to stir up anywhere like the degree of passion and yep. concern that yep. they ought to. 
No, you're quite right. So, so from about 1650 till just after 1800, uh, the British, not the government, but, but the British were involved in uh, the Atlantic uh, slave trade. A very brutal and frightful slave trade. Yes, it was. Made possible, of course, by people selling people of their own race in the first place. Uh, um, the, the, the British traders, slave traders, like, like the other Europeans, arrived on the coast of West Africa, and they didn't go far inland. Uh, the slaves were brought to them by other Africans who had enslaved them and sold them. Uh, so um, let's remember, Africans were involved in the slave trade before they got to the coast. And in fact, Africans had been involved in trading slaves with, um, uh, to, to the Roman Empire uh, under the subsequent Muslim empires too. So yes, uh, the British were involved in, in uh, slavery and the slave trade, but then in 1807, uh, the British Empire abolished the trade and in 1833 abolished slavery throughout the empire. And that made uh, Britain the, the first major power in the history of the world uh, to abolish the trade and the institution and to spend the next 150 years of its existence until it dissolved in suppressing slavery um, in Brazil, across the Atlantic, throughout Africa. And, and David Livingstone was a major opponent of slavery in, in Southern Africa, um, and um, India, and, and Malaysia. Um, uh, there are a couple of, of American uh, political scientists um, who have said that this was uh, the, the most costly moral uh, international endeavor in the history of the world. Um, uh, so, uh, and perhaps the most outstanding human rights movement of all times. Well, absolutely, because it, it was done in the name of, of a Christian belief in, in the basic human equality of, of all races under God and, and, and the right of all people to be um, uh, treated in a decent fashion, regardless of skin color. And this campaign was largely led by people who are now really demonized. They were well-to-do white males, often backed, of course, by some wonderful women, the very sort of people now that many elites would say are to be despised, the sort yes. of people that you are responsible for racism and for every evil you could think of. Yes, yes. It's true that there were freed blacks uh, were involved in the, in the campaign to abolish slavery in England. Um, Olauda Equiano was a famous one. His, his, his memoirs of being a slave were published by um, one of uh, Wilberforce's um, colleagues. So, so blacks were involved, but it's primarily because Britain in those days was overwhelmingly, as it remains overwhelmingly, uh, a, a white population. So if, if, if slavery was to be abolished, particularly in Parliament, white people had to do it, and white men had to do it, but they did it. Um, and that's the strange thing in the, in the current climate that, that uh, everyone, well, those on the, on the so-called woke left uh, want us to, to remember the, the awful evils of slavery, but f to forget what's happened between then and now. Uh, and that's just, just it's, it's perverse, frankly. Um, uh, well, it leads our young people in a situation where they only hear one side of the narrative to a loathing of their own culture in an age when if we value freedom, we need to stand up for our culture. That seems to me to be really quite important. Absolutely, and I, I think 
that goes back to, to the very reason I, I wrote this book, John, that uh, any human history is going to be a, a mixture of right and wrong, good and evil. Um, but the history of the British Empire, in, in, in many respects, is a history of increasing good. Um, um, we did slavery, we repudiated it, and then we, we, we couldn't undo the past, but we, we did the best, next best thing, which was to, to try and stop other people uh, indulging in the same thing. And to, many, many white Royal Navy sailors lost their lives. Yes, they did. Uh, and yet, you know, the critical theory movement would say that all whites are racist. Yes. And only whites are racist. Yes. It doesn't stack up. And the point in all of this is not to whitewash the bad things, but it's to balance it so that people can, amongst other things, recognise that if there is something that needs adjusting, no better than a liberal participatory democracy in which to make that change. Much harder to influence change if something's going wrong or there are injustices in an autocratic regime. And we ought to, I think, be much prouder of our own liberalism. No, I agree. And I, th I think that, that's, that, that's why the historical debate is so important, mm. that we, we remain, we retain faith in, in the liberal democracies we have built, uh, because they do have a long, a long history of, of liberal humanitarian endeavor. Um, with originally and significantly Christian inspiration. I'd like to come to my own country. I know you've thought about it. We've talked about it, and I've, I've hopefully been able to provide a bit of uh, material from thinking Australian authors and so forth. You on have. This, but, but Australia's <laughs> been a, you know, yeah. it's obviously been a colony. Yeah. And some utterly disgraceful and almost unforgivable things, well, unforgivable things have been done. Uh, to Aboriginal people in Australia. There's no getting away from that. My family have been there for a long time, deeply conscious of horrors such as the Mile Creek Massacre, which happened not long before my family arrived in the northwest of New South Wales. Mm. Uh, and it, it was the, the process of bringing the perpetrators of the massacre to justice were horrendous to watch because there was such resistance to the idea that a white man should hang for murdering a black man. But in the end, justice was done because there were some good people who were determined, mm. determined that there should be justice, that to hold to the ideals of Western civilization, if I can put it that way, justice had to be done. And yes. in the end, far too slowly, but it, it happened. But it seems to me that whilst we're in, there's a lot of self-flagellation in Australia over, over the fact that um, we were part of an empire and what have you. There are a lot of other things that have to be taken into account. For example, surely sooner or later it was going to happen in Australia. Well, then it becomes a question of who. Yeah. And there were worse options yeah. in terms of who the colonial power might have been, yeah. I think. Well, it's one of the features of that period that you, you do have modernizing modern Europeans sometimes in large numbers, especially in North America, uh, encountering peoples who in terms, in, in, in a variety of respects, were, were less developed. And that meant that the, the native peoples of the First Nations of North America, the Aboriginals of Australia, were uh, overwhelmed. And um, where there was no effective imperial authority, that encounter was completely unregulated. And so you have a mixture of incomprehension, mistrust, friction and violence. 
completely without any without any uh, parameters at all. So um, those who complain about imperial authority need to recognise that the absence of imperial authority meant that these these conflicts were completely uh, um, unregulated. And one of the virtues of imperial authority is it, it provided some kind of control of what was going on. As for Australia, I mean, you know more about it than I do, John, but from what I've read, I mean, uh, first of all, modernity was going to hit Australia and hit Australia, Australia's Aboriginals one way or another sooner or later. And it was going to be a difficult encounter. If it hadn't been the British, it would have been the French or the Americans. That's a fact. Secondly, you're right from what I've read, certainly, um, there was lots of sect settler injustice toward Aboriginals, massacres, um, especially when there was no overarching authority to restrain the settlers. But most of all, uh, the greatest killer of Aboriginal peoples was, was disease. Yes, that's true. Right? Um, from what I've read, uh, the, greatest killer, the greatest disease killer was smallpox. And uh, smallpox, um, as far as we know, was not introduced to Australia by Europeans. It was introduced, as far as we can tell, by um, Indonesian fishermen. <laughs> um, so uh, that's what weakened the Aboriginal peoples most of all, um, which, was, which was tragic. But no one intended to do that. It was, it was a tragic outcome. One of the features of colonial government is that it, it sought to control the process of this, of this cultural encounter and, and uh, sought to constrain settlers. Um, because colonial government uh, wasn't terribly powerful, its, its means were limited, it, couldn't always, it didn't have the power to constrain all the time, but it, it sought to. There's no doubt that colonial governors in Australia, often through evangelical Christian inspiration, uh, were very disturbed by, by the impact of uh, the European advent uh, upon Aboriginal peoples and, and sought to uh, restrain, to, to, to modify the impact and to help Aboriginal peoples cope. I mean, the, the Governor Macquarie was a, was a, was a, um, a famous example of that. Um, so there was, a, I think, th there was certainly wrongdoing on the part of, of settlers. Imperial government, colonial government tried to restrain that with some success, as it should have done. Uh, but, but the major killer was, was disease. Uh, and no one, no one intended that. Uh, let me go in where angels might fear to tread. Um, the potential benefits uh, of colonialisation if you take my own country, I represented a lot of Aboriginal people in the federal parliament. They had a very wide range of views and, and, and I'm very sympathetic and I respect the people uh, greatly. I recognise that it, it hasn't been easy. But quite often they would say to me, uh, they'd pull me aside and they'd say in their own laconic way, hey mate, you know, not sure I agree with whatever. Oh, I actually quite like living in Australia, you know, I, <laughs> I, I'm going to have a long life. And I live pretty comfortably, and I've got a good job, and I don't mind having the police around the corner, just as there are others who would want to kick out and say, you're terrible, you're part of a regime that's oppressed me. They had a range of views. Some of them felt that living in a prosperous liberal society was a pretty good thing. I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, the, um, whether we're talking about Australia or New Zealand or uh, Canada, um, those are um, three of the most liberal, most prosperous societies in the world. Um, and uh, they all grew out of, of uh, colonies and they have all sought 
with, with greater or lesser su ex success to integrate um, Aboriginal native peoples into society um, uh, so that they can enjoy the benefits of, of um, a f full benefits of citizenship like, like everyone else. Uh, there is something to be said for the British Empire insofar as, uh, for example, it, it, it did uh, suppress constant uh, warfare between native peoples. It, it, it imposed an overarching order um, and ended uh, a debilitating uh, warfare between peoples. Um, it um, integrated uh, very local economies into a global economy, which increased prosperity. And then it, it built liberal institutions, which eventually um, 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 native Aboriginal people, peoples were able to take a full part in. I, mean, I, th I think the first Maori MPs members of parliament uh, were to be found in the 1860s. The, the ideal was to take these peoples and to, to enable them to take a full part in, in, the, the, in, the, in the colonial society, society that was being built. It took a long time and, and um, it took a lot of adjustment and it's still in, in process, I guess, um, but it's been a success. And I think a lot of Aboriginal native peoples would, would um, acknowledge that. The point in all of this, of course, is that we need balance. If you're to draw the right conclusions, the whole story, or as much of it as possible, needs to be told. Uh, and that's so important for young Brits, young Australians, young people everywhere. If they're to carry forward the mantle of freedom, they have to know what has worked, what's not worked, what has been good, what has been bad, and to understand that instinctively we have, because of the institutions of freedom, the best tools available to any society, I would have thought, to right wrongs in the future, yes. to set ourselves in a better direction. Because our forebears have learnt sometimes through their terrible mistakes that they need to do things differently, and yet you get this sort of almost universal condemnation. A little subset, just as a little sort of illustration of that is that uh, an academic, uh, in adverted commas, I think it was an incredibly poorly mounted argument, claimed that Macquarie had been an owner of slaves. In fact, Dr Macquarie had bought two Indian boys in the slave markets in Calcutta, I think, hmm. with the express purpose in mind of setting them free because he opposed slavery. There's the world of difference between simply saying he owns slaves and he, owned, he purchased slaves to set them free. One disappeared. No one ever worked out what happened to him. Hmm. The other slave stayed with him, not as a slave, but as a paid servant for the hmm. rest of his life, was so loyal. His name was Jarvis. He's buried with Macquarie in his mausoleum on the Isle of Mull off the west coast of Scotland. <laughs> They trusted one another. Yes. yes. They valued one another. But that's not the story uh, that was put out by an academic on Australia's publicly funded broadcaster. That's it extraordinary. Completely changes yes. one's perspective of the man and his character. Yes. Yes. And this is everywhere. So as we um, wind down, thank you so much for your insights. I'd just love to explore with you the real attempts that are being made to address this problem of genuine academic freedom, of inquiry, 
of the cut and thrust of ideas, of making those ideas the centre of the discussion rather than personalising them uh, in, in exchanges. It seems to me there's light at the end of the tunnel in Britain that uh, there really is pushback against this claustrophobic approach uh, to, um, uh, if you like, education where people are told what to think rather than taught how to think. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm, I'm living proof of that. I mean, I, I, I've survived the last four years. Uh, I, I still get to say what I think. And there's an appetite to hear what I have to say and, and of others, others too. Um, and I, I, I really suspect that, that students are, are, are keen uh, to have a more open, open discussion. Uh, um, uh, so I, I, I do think there's, there is uh, hope for the future. Um, um, and my, my sense is that the, the, the more ideologically driven readings of history, um, whereby um, British Empire and other European empires were simply a litany of, of oppression and exploitation, um, those cannot stand the test of time because they're simply they're too simplistic. They're not true. Um, so I'm quite confident, actually, that in the end, uh, a more sane, balanced, fair, interesting <laughs> reading of of the um, the history of European colonialism um, will will triumph. Well, one final observation from me, as an Australian whose father fought during the Second World War and nearly lost his life in the African desert fighting alongside the English against Rommel. One of the turning points, uh, the first major battle that started to turn the tide, in fact, uh, in the Second World War. It needs to always be remembered that for whatever went wrong, whatever was mucked up, the simple reality is that when you had a very, very evil man heading up a very nasty and aggressive move to create a new empire to be called the Third Reich to last a thousand years, it was Britain that stood up when no one else did. Or if they had, they'd been run over already and was there at the beginning, right through to the end of that terrible event and at enormous cost, secured freedom for the democracies and ironically for the Japanese and the American, uh, uh, German people in the end as well. Yes, yes. And surely a fair rendering of one's history would acknowledge and uh, if you like do justice to the courage and the bravery of those people, men who whom gave all not so terribly long ago. No, indeed. No, indeed. Um, so you, you're quite right. Um, the, the, from May 1940, when uh, the French were defeated, uh, until June 1941, when Germany invaded Russia, uh, the British Empire was the only, with the exception of Greece, the only power in the field against Nazi Germany. And um, um, my father fought in, in uh, Italy, and uh, uh, to, to, the, to the right, to the um, east of uh, his unit, was an Indian division. And in fact, my, my father was mistaken for an Indian at one point because he was so brown. Um, and and the, the British imperial effort against 
Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan was largely an imperial uh, effort um, um, alongside Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans, and most of all, Indians. Uh, and in spite of the fact that Indians, most of the Indians were intent upon winning their independence, they fought, uh, and especially against the Japanese, because they recognized, as I said earlier, that um, whatever the shortcomings of British Empire, Japanese Empire was a lot worse. The, the, the very fact of the cohesion of British imperial resistance to Nazi uh, empire and Japanese empire uh, does speak well of the empire, because the peoples would never have fought for it if it, if it hadn't had something to be, to be said in its favor. And just stop and think what the alternatives might have been like for the people who inhabit the globe now if it hadn't been for the British Empire during those critical years. So it isn't all bad. <laughs> it isn't all bad. Not at all. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au. Thank you.